It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The increase in the number of people starting their own businesses in the United States has surged. Joining us today to talk about how to get a running start with a micro business is Elaine Pofelt, a small business specialist who is the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business. In her new book, Tiny Business, Big Money, Elaine provides a guide to making it big while keeping things small. Elaine is an independent journalist who specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. Her work has appeared on CNBC and in Fortune, Money, Forbes, and many other publications. As a senior editor at Fortune Small Business, Elaine was twice nominated for the National Magazine Award for her features. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Joan. It's great to be here. It's always great to reconnect with you. You know, I agree because this is such an important topic, particularly today, because as I said, there has been a surge in people starting their own businesses. What do you think, Elaine, has led to this increase? I think it's exhaustion from the pandemic. Honestly, I think a lot of people were in work situations that weren't ideal for them. They weren't healthy for them. They maybe were working for a a boss who uh, didn't appreciate them, a company that was not compensating them appropriately for the cost of living and for what they were contributing. And it's almost like when you're at the gym and you are uh, doing push-ups, say, and your arms get to that point where you can't do another push-up. I think the pandemic was like that. People had to do so much extra work and so much extra emotional coping, they just couldn't cope with any um, any more discomfort at work. And they rethought their lives and they started experimenting with starting a small business, something that is hard to do when you have to commute. But when people aren't commuting, they're at home and they've gotten back an hour or two a day, they can very uh, privately try starting a business, see if they like it. And a lot of people are discovering that they're really good at it and they had no idea that they were actually good at it. So then they can kind of take the ball and run with it and say bye-bye. And, you know, like you're saying, Elaine, I think it gave us an opportunity to prioritize what's important in life. And and maybe we said to ourselves, well, if I'm going to work 70 hours a week, I don't want to have to deal with someone governing my life and telling me what I need to do. I'm going to do it for myself. Exactly. I remember when I first became uh, self-employed, that was like in 2007, and I had three children then uh, ages four and under. And I remember being able to go to a doctor's appointment without telling someone. And it was the first time I felt like an adult able to govern my own life because normally I would have had to ask my boss if I could take a few hours off to take care of my children, which is a responsibility that I have as a parent. 
um, and have to justify it. And I thought, wow, this is so liberating. I will never go back. And I never did go back, honestly, um, because once you have a taste of that freedom and you have the confidence that you can earn a living on your own terms, why would you go back to that? Because you can still work with the exact same people as a freelancer in many industries or as a consultant and still do the same high level work without a lot of the hassle. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I could ever sit in an office from nine to five again and just be that constricted after having my own business for 11 years. And you know, Aline, we hear so much about people quitting their jobs at record rates and that there are all of these open jobs that employers can't fill. Do you think the reason that that's happening is because so many have started their own businesses? I think it's a combination of factors. One is there are folks who are extremely nervous about COVID. I think people are on a spectrum about that. And the people that are very nervous about it, if they if they are able to quit, maybe are saying, let me quit and start a business. I don't think it's because they started a business that they're quitting. I think it's because the stress of being in the workplace for them personally is too much. Maybe they have a health condition, you know, that makes them much more vulnerable to COVID than than um, someone else might be. And they want freedom to control their own health choices and their lifestyle choice. I think that's a very big factor. I think also there are a lot of inequities in the workplace um, for women and people of color, and they've had to live with it basically their whole careers. And they're saying now, okay, I have to deal with that. I'm underpaid. I don't have the same access to promotions. I have to maybe commute in on a um, on a subway where I'm a little nervous about catching COVID. And then I have to go into an office where maybe I can catch it. And the cost is just not worth it. And so they're more willing to take a risk because the risk of actually going into the office seems greater. And I think this is the first time we've ever had something like this where weighing the risks and benefits of not having a job actually seems less risky to people who are more risk averse in general. And I think that's very interesting because a lot of them are finding they actually have the capabilities to run a good little business and support themselves. And they probably never had to do those jobs for safety and security. They just didn't build the confidence in themselves to do it because most of us didn't go to schools that encourage anyone to become an entrepreneur. It's not really um, an academic discipline that's taught in, in schools up, you know, in the K through 12 world. It, and honestly, when I first um, started working in entrepreneurship journalism, I remember I ran the best business schools for entrepreneurs at Success Magazine. And a lot of the universities did not want to own that they were teaching entrepreneurship. It was not seen as uh, as legitimate a discipline as studying corporate business. And gradually it became widely adopted and the top business schools embraced it. But I remember when I ran that ranking, it was very hard to get participation, even when I knew that they had a program. <laughs> and, and, and now they're all proud of it and happy to have it as an interdisciplinary area. But as a result, a lot of people have really not learned these skills and they have to kind of learn it as they go along. And not everybody has the confidence that they can do it or the connections where they can ask other business owners and some people grow up in families like when my dad was a civil servant and there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship in our family. And interestingly, my brother and I are both self-employed, but you have to know where to get the information to um, actually do it. 
because it's something where you, you have to tap into the collective knowledge. So I think what's happened now is just it, it was kind of sink or swim for a lot of people. That, and they just did it. And they found they, they could really excel at it. I agree with you, because if my father were alive now, when I started my own business, I think he probably wouldn't have understood it, or he would have been extremely nervous for me because that wasn't his frame of reference. He came from being a company person. And so, you know, like you were saying, they may not have seen the opportunities that we have, but hopefully we'll be passing this on to our children and our grandchildren. And so in your new book, you write about a micro business. How is a micro business defined? What does that mean? There, there are a lot of different ways experts define it, but basically these are, I, I define them in the book as up to 20 employees. In the first book, I looked at non-employer businesses. These are businesses that have no payroll. They might have a team, you know, of like uh, a bookkeeper and an accountant that help the entrepreneur, but basically they have no employees and they're, they're solopreneur businesses or maybe a couple. Um, that would be a non-employer business too or two business partners um, where they have no employees. But once you go to payroll, that's what I'm writing about in this book or people that have such a formalized extended team of contractors that they're a quasi-employer business. So uh, they might say they have a team in the Philippines, which is very common for U.S. businesses. They don't technically have to make the, the workers employees, and a lot of times they don't because it's just easier in terms of the setup, um, but they function as employees. That's what I'm looking at, and there is a big change in mindset that is required when you're managing a team because you have to convey the purpose of the business, how you want things done, how you want customers to be served and that sort of thing. And that's a challenge for a lot of people who have been solopreneurs. I just heard it over and over again. Actually, as I, I did an updated edition of the Million Dollar One Person Business about a year ago at this point. And when I spoke to people, some of them had, had grown the business a little bit. And they were talking to me about that very factor, how it's a whole different skill set when it's not just you or not just you. And, you know, once a year you talk to your accountant. And they had to raise their game as, as leaders because like it or not, even if they wanted to be solos, if they're relying on other people's help, there's a big communication uh, requirement for that. And we can all get better at that. And so that's what I looked at is, you know, how are they organizing these teams? They like to travel light. They don't want to be a formal corporation. And what I found was they're using very interesting methods. Some people have no meetings. They manage the whole team on Slack or by, you know, texting and email and all kinds of uh, different methods than you would be taught in business school. Elaine, if someone has a successful one-person business, how does that person know it's time to hire employees? And is there a benefit to doing so rather than working with consultants? Usually that point comes when you start noticing slippage in the business. You're just not able to make deadlines or, you know, you get sick for one day and the whole thing starts falling apart. That's usually a sign that you're maxed out and that you don't have enough um, backup in place in the event something goes wrong. Because sometimes things do go wrong. Uh, um, and employees are usually best when you need them there consistently. Sometimes employees might have slack periods where, you know, maybe the business isn't coming in. That happened with a lot of businesses during the pandemic. It would have to be worth it to keep them on payroll consistently anyway, despite any slack period. That's one sign that it's still worth it, even if you have to pay them some weeks when it's slow. Um, because it is a big cost. Usually it's the biggest cost 
in any business next to maybe real estate, depending on what part of the country the business is in. Um, and and so you, it, you, you also have to make payroll, right? That's a legal requirement. You can't just not pay people because you're short on cash. So you have to do a financial analysis too and one and look at whether you have the cash flow to support paying each employee consistently every month or every week, depending on how you structure it. I have met so many people, Elaine, who are very good at what they do. They really are leaders in their particular field, and yet they can't get their business to a certain higher income. And and they're baffled by it. Like they don't know what they're doing wrong. So what have some of the people you've interviewed told you about what they attribute their successes to? Like, how does one person make that high income while somebody equally as good never generates it? I think one of the things that holds people back is staying in the weeds too much and not being willing to trust either automation, outsource services, or other people. And in in the book, I look at this continuum that people can go down. Usually the first best step, if you feel like you're not maxing out your revenue, is to take time to look at how you're spending your time during the week. I, I work with a business coach, and he had me do this. And you literally create an Excel or a Google Sheet and put down what you do every hour of the day and take a look at where are you spending time on tasks that could be done with technology if you took the time to set it up, um, an outsource service, or by somebody else. Usually technology is the least expensive, lowest risk um, way to offload things because if you don't like an app, you're not having to fire the app, right? You just stop paying for it and discontinue it. Um, but the, the others take a little more um, thoughtfulness because you, if you're bringing on a contractor and outsource service, you'll have to vet them and make sure that they're up to your standard, um, that you're comfortable with what their processes are. Sometimes their processes can be so elaborate that it's not worth it to work with them. Um, and then when you, get to that point where you really need a contractor constantly or an outsource service constantly, that might be the point at which you consider bringing someone in-house. I would say the first step is if you're not maximizing revenue, they almost all use automation. I did a survey and where I surveyed the entrepreneurs in the book about their best practices and all of them, 100% of the businesses I surveyed, it was um, 49 businesses, use contractors, 90% use automation, um, and, and, and that tells you a lot. You know, they're not doing all the work of the business themselves, even if they're just, you know, a two-person business. Um, they're, they're relying on somebody other than themselves or something other than themselves. And in, in um, the chapter, Set Yourself Up for Success, I look at this whole continuum. Raj Srivastava is a tech entrepreneur who, who creates um, – reports for people that do a certain kind of investing and his business is completely automated. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then I go through people that have um, a combo of automation and contractors or contractors plus employees, et cetera. So you can see what it looks like in, in different permutations and figure out which one is right for you. But it's basically dip a toe in the water and then see, okay, did this free up my time so that I can now go out and win new business or I can think more about strategy and R&D and the things that really 
help me get to the next level in the business. And sometimes there are other factors at play. It might be that you're underpricing your services or your product and you, you need to increase your prices. Um, and that alone will propel you to the next level. I've seen that happen a number of times. And um, that's something to really look at objectively. That's where a business coach or a peer coach or somebody at SCORE or the SBA can help you to um, analyze your practices. Because a lot of times when you start a business, you feel lucky to have any customers at all. I think back to my first year in business, even though I hired freelancers and I knew what the going rate was, somehow I felt like even though I was an experienced journalist, I like. I was a new freelancer and I had to start all over again. I got out of that after about a year, but (laughs) I see that happen a lot. You just feel like it's different when you're in business for yourself. And after taking on some very unprofitable projects, I I started changing my rates and making sure that I could run a sustainable business because you're honestly not doing anyone any favors if you underprice your product or service because you will go out of business and then you won't be there to help anybody. And your customers won't even want you to undercharge. They, they like fairness. A good customer will like you to be charging what your product or service is worth. That's another thing that I learned. Um, and so that that's another low-hanging fruit for a lot of new and even experienced entrepreneurs. Sometimes right now, for instance, costs have gone up a lot because of the supply chain crisis. And uh, like if you own a restaurant or if you own a business that uses paper or other things that are trapped on ships out at sea somewhere, (laughs) the prices are high and you may have to raise your prices. And people don't like doing that. They feel a lot of pain asking for more money. But if you gradually um, grandfather in higher prices, maybe keep the same prices uh, in a service business that you had, or you put up a little sign if you have a restaurant that you have to pass along some of the costs, people do understand. They're not going to stop coming to a restaurant because the price of one dish went up by $1, even though we have that fear that you'll go out of business if you do these things, it's usually never realized. Elaine, if someone wants to get started on the journey to business ownership, what are a few of the best tips that you can offer? I would start with what you know, because you're probably an expert in it. If you have a job working for someone else, you might have spotted a little opening in um, the marketplace for something that you needed. I'll give you an example. There were um, two fellows, Jason Martin and Patrick Falvey, who started a business that I wrote about called App Evolve, and they were software developers. And they noticed um, there were not a lot of apps that were compatible with Salesforce at the time, that um, customer relationship management software. And so they, um, they went out on their own and they started developing those types of apps, but then they found there were um, demands for other types of apps and they expanded. And now their business has, they first it was just the two of them. They started it on Upwork and now they're at the stage. They had just hired their first employee, an admin. Um, they're in Boise um, and they had gotten an office in Boise and were um, planning to expand and uh, build a team. But they had a team of contractors that they relied on, a, a quite a large team all over the world. Um, so that's an example of just noticing something on your job where there's there's an opportunity to add value. And, and that's what it is about, bringing something that people need or, or want or that, or that gives them pleasure. All of those things are valid reasons to start a business. 
Um, and then if you're doing a service business, a lot of times start with your network. I did a LinkedIn post once. I, I'll have to resurface it because it was just so informative what people posted where I asked um, what would be the one piece of advice you would give someone who lost their job and had to start a business today. And they said, go to your network and tell people you're in business, basically. But that came up over and over again. And um, a lot of the people who did service businesses in this book and my first book, their first customer was their old company, interestingly. In interestingly, they, they didn't burn bridges. And they weren't too proud to say, you know what, I put up a shingle. And if you need any help, no matter how small, I'm here for you because there's, there's something else that happens. As soon as you have business and you start getting booked, you and I were talking at the beginning of this call before we started about being really busy. It does give you confidence that you can, um, you can turn things down that aren't a good fit, that you can charge the right prices if your dance card is full. If you don't have any business, it's harder to have those conversations where you're talking with a new customer and they say, so what other project have you been working on? They don't want a whole roster. They just want to hear about one. If you have none, you won't feel confident. Um, what, one thing that you can do if, if you don't have any is to do some volunteer projects and use your professional skills. Don't just do any random volunteer project. Do something where, um, like, for instance, if you're a marketer, maybe there's a nonprofit in your community that needs marketing help. So if you have those conversations, so, you know, what are you working on lately? You could say, I'm doing a, a report on blah, blah, blah for this nonprofit. You don't have to say that it's a volunteer project because you never would say that if it wasn't a volunteer project. You just It's just a project you're working on. That gives you some momentum and it shows the client that you are a sought after professional and, and that will help you start picking up speed in the business. The book is Tiny Business, Big Money, Strategies for Creating a High Revenue Microbusiness. If you'd like to get more information about Elaine and her work, you can visit ElainePofelt.com. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. I really look forward to the next time you come back. You are such a wealth of information, and I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you, Joan. I always enjoy connecting with you, too. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. We all want 
want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss unhealthy marriages. Welcome, Odette. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm so happy to be here with you. Odette, oftentimes we hear people say to someone, your marriage is making you sick. What does that actually mean? How can a marriage make a person sick? Well, if someone is experiencing any physical or mental health symptoms, they may be directly linked to the state of your marriage. You know, we've all heard that smoking, eating fried foods, and lack of exercise may eventually lead to poor health. But what we don't realize is that being in an unhealthy relationship may be just as detrimental to your health and well-being. There's been a number of studies linking chronic marital stress to a decline in both physical and mental health. Professor of Psychiatry Robert Waldinger, he's the fourth director of a long-term Harvard Medical School study, which has been following participants for over 75 years. And this study has found that the people that were the healthiest at age 80 were those that reported being the most satisfied in their relationship at age 50. Waldinger has quoted as saying that how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence on our health. There's also a University of Michigan study that found that there's a 35% increase in your chances of getting sick and even shortening your life by four to eight years if you're in an unhappy or chronically stressful relationship. As you were just providing that information, I think so many of us don't pay attention to this. You're right. You know, we, we think about our nutrition and whether we're exercising, but I don't think we're really looking at our interpersonal relationships and even, you know, our marriage, the most important relationship we may have. And so it really can, as, as you're saying, create dis-ease in all of us and make us sick. So if we're thinking that this is happening, what, what are some of the things that we can do to remedy the situation? Joan, yes, it could be, there could be very serious consequences, actually. If you don't take steps to improve your marriage, you may start to notice a steady decline in your health. And with declining health, all areas of your life will be affected as well as your longevity. There's another study, an Ohio State study, that found that as a result of chronic marital stress, it's possible to develop insomnia, depression, anxiety, decreased immune function, obesity, high blood pressure, and other heart problems. It found that unhappy couples had higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Now, our bodies are hardwired with survival instincts as well as automatic physiological responses. So your body naturally releases this stress hormone when it thinks that you're in danger. The reason that your body does this is that it wants you to react a certain way so that you can protect yourself from the perceived threat or dangerous situation. This is why the why cortisol is sometimes referred to as the fight or flight hormone. It makes sense that when we're in conflict with ourselves, many times our behaviors include fighting and arguing or avoiding having to deal with the conflict altogether by shutting down, not talking at all, which can potentially cause an even bigger wedge in the relationship. So in times of conflict, we tend to literally fight or flight. But when you are in this constant fight or flight state, you're continuously activating that stress hormone. And the hormone comes in very handy if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. However, chronic levels of cortisol lower your T-cells, which protects us from infection and help fight cancer. And it also affects your blood pressure as well as all of the ailments I mentioned earlier. So the consequences of being in a chronically stressful or unhappy marriage can be quite serious. If we're not even paying attention or realizing that this could be the problem, are there some signs of an unhealthy relationship that we should be looking for? 
Yes, Joan, it's important that we stop for a moment and take stock of your current circumstance as it relates to your physical and mental health, as well as the health of your marriage. In other words, think about any physical or mental health issues you may be currently experiencing. And on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being very poor, 10 being excellent, how would you rate your level of physical health and wellness? How would you rate your level of mental health and wellness? Then take a look at your marriage. Think about your level of overall happiness and satisfaction. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate that level? 1 being extremely unhappy and 10 being blissfully happy. Notice if there's any correlation between the numbers you come up with. In general, if you start noticing any physical or mental symptoms, take a look at the state of your relationship. Awareness is an important step in taking control and making potentially life-saving changes. Another thing, Joan, Albert Einstein famously said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Now, I'm not suggesting that either you or your partner are insane, but I am saying that if you want to create a different result, you have to do things differently. On a serious note, if you are in a situation where the relationship is toxic or your partner is abusive in any way, consider reaching out to a professional for help and take steps to remove yourself from an unhealthy or potentially dangerous situation. But if you are in a loving, committed relationship and you've just found that you're in a rut and an unhealthy dynamic, there are things you can do to improve your marriage. I know we always want our partner to change, and perhaps they should, but be willing to start making the changes yourself without waiting for your partner to change. First of all, beware of what Dr. John Gottman coined the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So instead of criticizing, express yourself without blame. Use I statements, for example, and avoid treating your partner with contempt by focusing on the things that you appreciate about your spouse and be sure to communicate that appreciation and respect. Also, rather than being defensive, accept responsibility for your part in the conflict. Remember, no matter how much we disagree with someone, there's always at least 10% that we can agree on. And finally, do your best not to stonewall. When you find yourself shutting down because you're feeling overwhelmed, just take a break, but don't shut your partner out completely. In general, prioritizing your relationship and taking steps to have the best marriage possible will not only improve your overall happiness and satisfaction, it'll contribute to leading a long, healthy life. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. And as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Odette. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. My next guest, Jeffrey Antonucci, went from being a bricklayer to a published author who has launched the advocacy titled Love and Peace, A Sign for Our Times. Through this initiative, Jeffrey works to spread positive messages of love, peace, and inspiration. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me, Joan. I always look forward to our interviews. Well, Jeffrey, I wanted to have you come back on because it's now the month of February, and this is a time when most of us turn our attention to love, and what better topic to talk about than what you're trying to accomplish? So for those who may have missed some of our previous segments, can you very briefly remind us about your Love and Peace Initiative and what it is you're trying to accomplish? Sure, John. Happy to do so. Thank you. So in our first interview, We basically went over how this all came to me in the first place, and we went over the mission, vision, and values of 
this advocacy. And then in our second interview, we spoke about where love comes from and then how does it go out from us into the world. And basically that's saying the power of love is in all of us. It's the same power that drives the entire universe. And when we put it out into the world, it can only do good, Joan. So, Jeffrey, as I had mentioned, it's now February, and we tend to think about love a little bit more maybe than we do the rest of the year because it's Valentine's Day and we get all of those wonderful Hallmark reminders. Why do you think this is the perfect time for us to really pay attention to what it is you're trying to accomplish? So it's interesting in a way when, just like you're saying, it's Valentine's Day, the theme of Valentine's Day is love. And it's in the air. You could feel it. My question is, why can't we keep that every day of the year? Why can't we have that every day of the year and keep that air and openness of the love throughout our lives? And that's what it is, what I say, is behind my advocacy. Joan, we have our mission. We have our vision, and we have our values. And the values consist of the five loves. And if we could go by the five loves, we could have that loving air and loving atmosphere throughout the year. Because as I think about it, what we have on Valentine's Day is really people following the five loves without them even realizing it. So we have the roadmap. We have the roadmap here. And, Joan, I feel, to answer your question, we need this. The world needs this. And it's right, we hold it in the palm of our hands. We hold this power of love in the palm of our hands. And it's just a matter of taking things from a different perspective. And let's let's say, hey, yeah, let's make every day Valentine's Day. Right. And but you know, Jeffrey, when we think of Valentine's Day, we think of romantic love, you know, between two people. And so you just talked about the five loves. Can you tell us what those five are and how this differs or complements romantic love? Awesome question. Awesome question, Joan. So the five loves consist of one, love, honor, and respect yourself. Two Love, honor, and respect what you do and the love you bestow. The third love is love your time at rest, absorbing and embracing the loving world around you. Fourth love, love, honor, respect, and heal Mother Earth. And the fifth love, to love, honor, and respect each other and celebrate our similarities and differences. Okay, so on Valentine's Day, yes, it's a romantic love. So I had to, like I say, I had to think long and hard about that. Is romantic love different from the love I'm talking about via my advocacy and the love I'm talking about is in all of us as far as the power of love? Is it different? Joan, when I when the answer came to me, it was like, Jeff, you shouldn't even thought twice about it. Of course, romantic love is love. The 
question, though, is if someone, let's say in a romantic situation, they fall in love. If it's love, though, and it's so powerful, how can they then fall out of love? And when they do fall out of love, sometimes that's not so pretty. Okay, if there's, a, if there's a marriage, if there's a union, and it comes to where that marriage or union has to end, sometimes that's not done in such a kind manner, not the most loving manner. And what, it, what hit me here was to say, when that couple fell in love, all they did, time changes people, right? Situations change. Maybe now they're not meant to live in this marriage, in this union together. But that doesn't mean they have to stop loving, honoring, and respecting each other. So, okay, if they feel now they need to go their separate ways, as long as they, they stay grounded <laughs> in the fifth love, it could be a more pleasant separation. It doesn't have to become anything that bad, right, in that respect. Well, as you were talking about the five loves, the, the first thing I was thinking was that's something you would want in a romantic relationship, all five of those things, as well as any other type of relationship. And now as you're talking about when relationships end, you can then mm -hmm. take those five loves and apply them to just being a human being, just being yeah. kind and generous. And so I think that those five loves can be the foundation of everything we do in life with every person that we meet. Joe, honestly, you, you just gave me chills because that is exactly what this advocacy is about. And as you mentioned me being a, a former bricklayer, everything about masonry is based on a solid foundation. And that to me, is exactly just what you said. The five loves establish and create that solid foundation. And again, yes, like if you say Valentine's Day, hey, you know what? We're kind of going by these five loves. Keep going by that. And that, that then can meld itself into all different types of relationships between people, between countries, and we can really do so much in the way of solving our problems if we all come from this same place as that solid foundation of the five loves. I really appreciate you saying that, Joan, because that's just absolutely perfect. Well, and it, like you said, it's, it's really what we all need today. These five loves should be the foundation of everything we do. And Jeffrey, before we run out of time, I don't want to forget to touch upon this. You recently did something pretty fun. You held a Spread Love and Peace Ryan campaign, and there were videos popping up all over the place. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and how did it turn out? Oh, gee, I appreciate you asking, Joan. Yes, it was fun. So literally, I just, like a lot of things, you know, ideas come, like like early in the morning, I had this idea, you know what, we're coming upon New Year's Eve, Ryan Seacrest does his big uh, New Year's Eve celebration there, it's, the old, it's a former, you know, Dick Clark's, uh, what Dick Clark used to do, anyway, I thought, I said, you know what, I'm going to see if I could get videos of people, everyday people, and asking 
Ryan if he would be willing to spread love and peace out to the world on New Year's Eve using the three-finger hand sign that symbolizes love and peace for all people and all things as part of my advocacy, love and peace, a sign for our times. That's the sign for our times, this three-finger hand sign. Joan, literally, I went out there. I went right to Times Square, <laughs> and uh, I would approach people. Yeah, approach people and tell them what I was doing. I had my card and all with me. And it was amazing at how many people jumped on board with this thing, okay? <laughs> and they allowed me to take videos of them saying just that, bread, love, and peace, Ryan. And they were holding up the hand sign and things like that. And I had a good friend who was willing to help me uh, put all those videos together. And we made one video. It's a little over nine minutes long. And uh, we had it all compiled, and we put it out there on not just Facebook and uh, Instagram and TikTok and all of that. Now, the thing is, Joan, I knew going into this, you know, I'm just a little guy here. You know, this is a grassroots effort. I don't have a big uh, social media following and things like that. So I knew it was going to be tough to get this to Ryan. And it, well, it never got to Ryan, as far as I know, anyway. <laughs> but, but that doesn't mean it was not successful. Absolutely. What, right? I mean, we, we had people just all over this thing. They, so many people said just what you said before, Joan. We need this. We need this. And they were willing to do this. And it's putting positivity out there. So that's, that's the message, I think. You know, it's... It's, it's a challenge. We're working this really, like I say, from grassroots, but it's putting positivity out there. And I think only good can come from that. And just think how many lives you touched with this video. And so we want to touch more lives. If you want to learn more yes. about Jeffrey and his work, you can visit loveandpeace.life. Again, loveandpeace.life. Share it with your friends. Share it with people you love. And let's help Jeffrey spread such a beautiful message around the world. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Joan. Thank you for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey there, freelancer. Has COVID affected your receivables? Of course it has. And I'm sure you could probably use some professional help. A true test in choosing a top-notch debt collection agency is their recovery rate and the amount of money collected by the agency for their clients. That's a great return on investment. Also important today are the five-star Google reviews about their personnel and services. Wouldn't you hire a collection agency with 830-plus national reviews, over 70% of which are from the debtors that the agency was able to collect funds from? That's great diplomacy. May I suggest Kinnum, the diplomatic debt recovery firm? Our name comes from Kin Family, Num Numbers, Family Before Numbers, People Before Profits. This is Vito Mazza. Reach me at 800 800- 
your health. Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Fine Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm so glad to be back, Joan. Thank you. Eileen, recently there was an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, The Death of a Diet. In the article, a story was shared about a woman's experience with weight loss and dieting. And one of the things she talked about was that she became obsessed with foods that she couldn't have. And, you know, when you're on a diet, that's pretty much what it's all about, you know, being obsessed with what you can't eat. And whenever she felt that way, it would lead to binging. And it was such a strong emotion that drove her to eat. So what are your thoughts on this type of emotional eating and how common is it? Um, I think it's really interesting that um, you're bringing this it's very important because um, there are, to be honest with you, there are pe- people like me who uh, quit. Um, I was born being an emotional eater, and that had a lot to do with um, the environment that I grew up in, et cetera, et cetera. And however, there are lots of people who go on diets who weren't necessarily emotional eaters, like I characterized myself as being, but become emotional eaters because of the restrictions that uh, the diet uh, imposes upon us, upon whomever. And so in my own experience, Joan, not only, you know, again, I will say I popped out of the womb being an emotional eater, but also I became an emotional eater in addition to that because of uh, being on so many diets for uh, the first half of my life. And you know what's interesting, Eileen? I would call myself an emotional eater as well. I, I eat for comfort and to feel close to people that are no longer here, my mother in particular. But I had never really thought about it being emotional eating as the result of deprivation. When we go on these diets and we tell ourselves, well, I'll never be able to eat this again or that again, it's almost like setting yourself up to break out of something. I, I would agree with you. And uh, the, um, the the brain does funny things. There's an expression I'm going to try and get as accurately as possible. Uh, that which we think about persists. Right. And so if we just pretend uh, I'm using potato chips uh, as an example, if we, and, and I'm one of these people, I'm not particularly a, a, a chipaholic, so to speak, but I really do love having, for example, uh, potato chips with a tuna fish sandwich or a grilled cheese sandwich. There are some things that I link with chips. If chips are not on my, uh, I'm putting this in quotation marks now, my diet plan, then guess what? Um, If I have my sandwich, then I'm going to be automatically thinking about potato chips. 
and the desire to have them and the loss of them and the sadness around that. And as a result, not only do I have uh, obsessions about potato chips, but then that could lead to the counterpart obsession, the compulsions rather, that would drive me to not only just have a handful of chips with my sandwich, but, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking from experience here, um, I would then eat the whole bag as a result of the obsessions firstly, and then the compulsions. And so um, we can drive, the brain participates in this, and um, if we're not uh, aware that this kind of thought process and then behavioral results can happen, um, we're uh, binging on foods that we you know, normally wouldn't binge on. Mm-hmm. And that is simply because of deprivation and the fact that a diet or a plan or a whatever says we can't have them. So, Eileen, can you share with us then one strategy that will help us to break this pattern? The number one thing that I would say to people is stop dieting. When we stop dieting, we are, if we're really true to that mindset, all foods are legal, so to speak. There are no such things as good foods, bad foods. There are no such things that are off limits or on limits. We're able to eat anything that we want. Now, uh, people hear me say that, and often there is this uh, uh, automatic negative response. Oh, Eileen's telling us uh, I can have ice cream for breakfast or uh, potato chips and popcorn for lunch, you know, whatever silly combinations we might want to come up with, or I can eat uh, a pint of ice cream for dinner. No, I am not saying that at all. I am saying, though, that the foods that we love that are not necessarily high in nutritional value but really taste good can be filtered into our lives, can be placed in our lives in very strategic ways to enhance our eating experience, number one, and number two, avoid the obsessions, the compulsions, those behaviors that drive the binges on these foods. And I think the important takeaway is that diets are not permanent, but lifestyle changes can be. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, this same statistic, Joan, and you've heard me say this before, I'll probably be on my deathbed saying this, Um, 95% of people who go on diets gain their weight back. What's wrong with that statistic? Oh my God, 95% of people gain their weight back who go on diets. Right. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. There you go, Joan. Absolutely. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. As always, this is such an important topic, and it's such an important message that we really have to get out there. If you would like to learn more about Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. Or to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen.
joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.